Hopefully, you're on a beach somewhere, soaking up the sun and catching some waves. Or maybe you're exploring a new city, sightseeing and people watching. Or if you're like me, you're making the most of your summertime in your own backyard. That summer feeling, that summer feeling. But wherever you are, or wherever you're headed soon, don't forget to bring a book. From Virginia Humanities, this is With Good Reason. I'm Sarah McConnell, and today we've got summer reading recommendations for you, whether you're packing for the beach or the front porch. That summer feeling is going to haunt you the rest of your life. When the cool of the pond makes you drop down on it, when the smell of the lawn makes you... There's a lot going on in the news, a lot to keep track of, but sometimes it's okay to put aside the news and just take out a good book. Our first guest is Inman Majors. He's an author and professor of English at James Madison University. We asked him for his recommendation on a good summer book, but first we talked about his own latest novel. Inman, your latest novel is Penelope Lemon, Game On. Tell us a little bit about Penelope Lemon. Penelope Lemon uh, is a small-town mother who's just been divorced for the second time at 40. She's now living in her mother's basement with her 8-year-old son and back in the workforce. She was comfortably in the middle class, and now she's finding out that it's going to be tough to stay there. What, did you, what made you think of Penelope? Is she modeled on someone you know? Well, a lot of people. I've spent half my life in small towns uh, all in the South, and you know, everywhere I would go, you go to the bank, the bank teller. I was like, man, she should be pressing the bank. It'd be some young gal, <laughs> 23, 24, probably hadn't finished college or had maybe never started college, and just sharp and savvy. And I thought, you know, these people aren't being presented in books, TV, and movies. And I, that kind of got me going. And then I uh, coached my son's baseball team in Waynesboro. And half the kids had moms, you know, who were single, working moms. They might have two or three kids. And somehow they always got their daughter or son to practice. They didn't seem put upon. They didn't, they didn't act like life was unfair. They, had, they were good humored. This was life. You know, sometimes you have to switch jobs. Sometimes you have to scramble, get somebody else to take your son to practice. Sometimes you have to be at three places at one time. That's life. And they were just tough. I liked their toughness. And so thus was born Penelope Living. I've heard you call her the R-rated Mary Tyler Moore. <laughs> uh, maybe PG-13. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, I grew up watching I Love Lucy and Mary Tyler Moore and Carol Burnett, Gilda Radner. I've always liked funny women. So I'm trying to do kind of a, maybe a rural Bridget Jones, an R-rated Mary Tyler Moore meets a risque Andrew Griffith show. Give me a taste. All right. So this is, uh, this is the very first chapter. Penelope Lemon sat on the bleachers at her son's baseball practice, wondering if she'd still be married to her husband if she'd never seen him in his yellow kimono robe. The robe in question was a short little matronly number that came just to his knees and no farther. It, was, it wasn't actually a kimono, of course. It was shorter, for one, much shorter, and made not from silk but from the same polysatin as most of her own undergarments. James was a tall, pale man with knobby knees, and she thought... Then as now, there was an odd tutorial choice for someone hoping to entice a woman into sexual dalliance. <laughs> She's a funny character. She is a funny character. She'd be Ethel and I Love Lucy. You could always talk her into doing something. So I'm sort of satirizing being a middle-aged person 
and the challenges and absurdities of that, that entails. This sounds like a fast, fun read, and I understand you're serializing it. Yeah, I'd like to write about 10 of these things. You have written about women characters before, and you're good at it. Where do you get that? I, you know, I, I hope I'm good at it. People have asked me that question, if, you know, if I do do women well, and I don't think, oh, I need to think like a woman. I just think, what, what would I think right then? So I don't try to do anything differently. How would a person in this situation think? And that's how I do it. I mean, there's a lot of me in Penelope. There's probably more of me than anyone else. So I, I don't know if I'm in touch with my feminine side or what, but I just think right as a human being. I'm curious, are you reading anything now yourself? I read Play the Piano by Kurt Vonnegut recently, which is his first novel. And it, of all his books, I think it's the best of the dystopian novels. It's, I think it's the most prescient. It uh, predicts a universal wage, a, a time uh, in America where the only people with jobs are scientists, engineers, and the military. And you've got a whole group of people who want to work, and there's nothing for them to do. And this is written in the 50s. It's his first novel, Play the Piano by Kurt Vonnegut. You know, I have to be kind of careful about what I read. I don't want to read something that's going to be too similar to what I've read before. Uh, you know, like, I love Babbitt, and then uh, I read Kurt Vonnegut. It's like, obviously, Kurt Vonnegut read Babbitt. And, you know, my early comedies, for sure, are influenced by P.G. Wodehouse, who is the greatest comic wordsmith in the English language. He's the guy that did the uh, Birdie and Jeeves series. You got the rich, trust fund English guy, who's dumb and always gets in these silly jams and then this smart, trusty butler who get, gets them out of them. I think they've been serialized. There's, there's like a TV show and some audio books. Very British, very funny, very smart. He's, he's the master of hyperbole and understatement. He'll describe a hangover as if it's the D-Day invasion. You know, so it's that, that I really learned a lot from P.G. Wodehouse. So I'm, I'm interested in how uh, writers are influenced by other writers. What books... I'll read a book and say, oh, how did anybody write this? Uh, I read James Asia, Death in the Family. It's like, which, he's from Knoxville. I'm from Knoxville. And I said, you know, where did this come from? I'd never read anything like it. And then I read Thomas Wolfe, Look Homeward Angels. like, oh, now I see Asia had to read Wolfe. So I'm interested in the books I love. Where did they come from? You brought a couple of books in that are like that. Um, ones that you would recommend to others that you're not reading now that um, you found a surprising consilience between. I think the best American novel uh, is The Great Gatsby by F. Scott Fitzgerald. And it's, again, it's one of those books like, where did it come from? It's so lyrical. It's so pretty. It's the structuring so interesting. And then I had Professor Don Noble at the University of Alabama, American Lit, who had us read My Antonia by Willa Cather, which I came out seven years before The Great Gatsby. And I was like, Oh, just the language itself sounds just like Fitzgerald and the Great Gatsby. Lyrical, romantic, nostalgic, very concerned with the American dream, the American ideal, very good at writing setting. And so both have first-person narrators in uh, the Great Gatsby. It's Nick Carraway, but he's writing about the title character, Jay Gatsby. Willow Cather's Mantania, you have first-person narrator, Jim Burden, writing about the title character, Antonia. Both are striving, are looking for something that they can't find in their own lives, and they find them in these title characters. Right, let me read the last page of each and see if you can hear the similarities in language. This is the last bit of Willa Cather. Uh, Jim has come back to the scene of his youth, and he's feeling sort of out of sorts, and he's thinking back romantically and nostalgically uh, to his upbringing in Nebraska. 
I took a long walk north of the town, out into the pastures where the land was so rough that it had never been plowed up, and the long red grass of early times still grew shaggy over the draws and hillocks. Out there I felt at home again. Overhead the sky was that indescribable blue of autumn, bright and saddleless, hard as an animal. To the south I could see the dun-shaded river bluff that used to look so big to me, and all about stretched drying cornfields of that pale gold color I remembered so well. As I wandered over those rough pastures, I had the good luck to stumble upon a bit of the first road that went from Black Hawk out to the North Country, to my grandfather's farm, then on to the Shimerdas and to the Norwegian settlement. Everywhere else had been plowed under when the highways were surveyed. This half mile or so within the pasture fence was all that was left of that old road, which used to run like a wild thing across the open prairie, clinging to the high places and circling and doubling like a rabbit before the hounds. This was the road over which Antonia and I came on that night when we got off the train at Black Hawk, and were bedded down in the straw, wandering children, being taken we knew not whither. I had only to close my eyes to hear the rumbling of the wagons in the dark, and to be again overcome by the obliterating strangeness. The feelings of that night were so near that I could reach out and touch them with my hand. I had the sense of coming home to myself, and of having found out where a little circle man's experience is. For Antony and for me, this had been the road of destiny, had taken us to those early accidents of fortune which predetermined for us all that we can ever be. Now I understood that the same road was to bring us together again. Whatever we had missed, we possessed together the precious, the incommunicable past. The last word is past. And uh, here's Gatsby. Last page. He's back at the scene of the crime, just like uh, Jim Burden, Nick Carraway is. Gatsby's dead. And as the moon rose higher, the inessential houses began to melt away until gradually I became aware of the old island here that flowed once for Dutch sailors' eyes, a fresh green breast of the new world. Its vanished trees, the trees that had made way for Gatsby's house, had, had once pandered in whispers to the last and greatest of all human dreams. For a transitory enchanted moment, man must have held his breath in the presence of this continent. Compelled into an aesthetic contemplation, he neither understood nor desired face to face for the last time in history with something commensurate to his capacity for wonder. And as I sat there brooding on the old unknown world, I thought of Gatsby's wonder when he first picked out the green light at the end of Daisy's dock. He had come a long way to this blue lawn, and his dream must have seemed so close that he could barely fail to grasp it. He did not know that it was already behind him, somewhere back in that vast obscurity beyond the city, where the dark fields of the Republic rolled on under the night. Gatsby believed in the green light, the orgiastic future that year by year receives before us. It eludes us then, but that's no matter. Tomorrow we will run faster, stretch out our arms farther, and one fine morning, so we beat on, boats against the current, borne back ceaselessly into the past. Other than the word, the past, and that lyrical style, do you even see other ways in which he borrowed from well, I think the, the, Willa Cather? Yeah, um, she mentioned the old road that you could sort of sense the buffaloes, and he mentions the past before first sailors got there, whereas in this one, he imagines is the Dutch sailors first seeing uh, uh, New York, and they're both trying to connect the present moment, how am I here, standing here, and how am I connecting with the past, what this land was before I was here, or white settlers were here. So now I will ask for you to sum up who should read these two books, My Antonia and The Code of the Worcesters. Uh, I think uh, I think if you love The Great Gatsby, you should read My Antonia if you want to know where it came from. 
who he learned from. I think you should read any of the Birdie and G's books by P.G. Wodehouse if you want to hear the greatest comic wordsmith in the English language and just get a break from the news. Oh, gosh. <laughs> Inman Majors, thank you for talking with me on With Good Reason. It was a pleasure. Thanks for having me. I like it when the girls stop by in the summer. Inman Majors is a professor of English at James Madison University and the author of Penelope Lemon, Game On. That summer, new kids on the block, had a bunch of hits. Chinese food makes me sick. And I think it's fly when girls stop by for the summer. Summer. I like girls that wear Abercrombie and Fitch. I take her if I have one wish. But she's been gone since that summer, since that summer. Hip hop mama they speak in Spain. Our next batch of recommendations is for listeners who've been following the Me Too movement closely. They're shared by Erin Devine, joining us all the way from India. I'm Erin Devine. I'm an artist and a writer um, based in the DC area. And I teach at Northern Virginia Community College um, as an associate professor in art history. My book recommendation for this summer is Rachel Middleman's Radical Eroticism, Women, Art, and Sex in the 1960s. So this book looks at um, the growth of what we would categorize as erotic art in the feminist art movement. Um, So most of erotic art that we, you know, the way that we would sort of conceptualize it in in the history of Western art up until this point, it's, you know, your traditional lounging nude female. And, you know, these, the odalisques and the Venuses that, you know, have been painted for centuries that we just sort of took for granted. And it was in the 1960s that more women artists started to question where that viewpoint was coming from and who it was constructed for. So, for instance, Carolee Schneeman. Um, One of the most famous films that she did from this period was a film called, a film series really called Fuses, recordings basically of of sex with her partner at that time. So she would take the film and then she would paint on it, she would scratch on it, she would leave it exposed to the weather. Um, to give it colors and textures. And she would also take the camera and turn it at these different sort of odd angles, you know, setting it on a couch or something. And, you know, these close-up shots that lent it this sense of intimacy. And she wanted to explore sex as something that is sort of an everyday occurrence. Um, I think one of the things that these artists were also doing is a strategy that's called, you know, that we think of as appropriation, which is the recycling of an existing image. And then by sort of using it in a certain way, it makes us, the viewer, kind of call into question, you know, where these constructs actually come from. So Marjorie Strider, for instance, was a um, pop artist appropriating images of the pinup. She was doing these large-scale images of, um, you know, women with their mouths open, maybe with, you know, kind of a lollipop that was half hanging out. But from her viewpoint as a female artist and the large scale and also the fact that she would sort of exaggerate the breast and in a way where they were coming off of the canvas, you know, almost, you know, constructed three-dimensionally, so they were jetting into the viewer's space. Suddenly, when you're, you know, this image that we've taken for granted for so long is an image of sexuality, we then have to question, you know, its artificiality, the, the mode from which, you know, it's, it's, it's come to us from. Um, 
I think you should read this book if you're really calling into question lately the relationships between men and women. Um, what these women were doing was you know, 50 years ago. And so much of what they were calling into question is still something I think that we that we grapple with today. And also, you know, in thinking about relationships between men and women on an intimate scale, um, I always recommend Still Life with Woodpecker by Tom Robbins. So um, the premise is very fantastical. Um, there are aliens. There are redheads. It's uh, there are pyramids. Um, there's this, you know, just this fantastical plot that goes through the entire, the entire story, which is about, um, really the romantic relationships that we have and how those can, you know, consume us and whether or not that's a good or a bad thing. Again, I think you should read this book if you're really interested in you know, relationships between men and women, um, and the relationship with your own solitude, the kind of, um, I think, almost this, this sense of solitude, individuality versus being in the world, being with another person, and where those conditions sort of you know, rub up against each other, you know, if it's possible to have a romance with another person and also have a romance with the self. Um, if you're wrestling with these issues about partnership, it is a wonderfully exploratory, I, can't, I think, sort of tutorial almost about, you know, the nature of intimate relationships. Erin Devine is a professor of art history and humanities at Northern Virginia Community College. For some people, these hot months are a chance to catch up on the politics of the year. Sharon Jones is a professor at Radford University. She's spending her summer reading about the country and the presidency of Donald Trump. Sharon, we've been asking people to share with us what they're reading or planning to read this summer. I heard that you're spending the summer reading books that help you understand white poverty. Is that right? Yes, I've been uh, in this field, trying to better understand the misunderstood. It seems like for the past few years, there's been a pocket of people who've been saying, we are not being heard, thus this is how we're going to vote to make sure that our voices are finally heard. Where you live and teach, Radford University, is near one of the stops on President Trump's yes. campaign. Yes. He came here campaigning, and uh, it was very interesting. He came, and it was a, a huge uproar in our school systems. He was given... Um, Tickets were available online. Children were actually given the day off from school as an excused absence if they wanted to go hear the candidate. Um, it was interesting because that was one of the early campaign rallies that he had where there was actually some shoving and pushing with some of the media. And I almost feel like that media circus almost started here in, uh, in Radford. I don't have any social media. I don't do it. 
But it was interesting. Someone also pointed out to me that they thought they saw my son in the area. Could that be him? And no, it wasn't my child. And, and if it was, what would that mean? And there were people there for Black Lives Matter and were we affiliated? And no, we weren't. But it was just interesting to watch what was happening and all the pre- pressure that was happening just within our city around that. And where we live, people vote primarily Republican. Someone hugged my husband. He had on a red Radford shirt when he was going to vote, and someone hugged him and said, oh, I didn't think about wearing red today. In the area where I live, it's a small rural area of Southwest Virginia, and coming from Brookline, Massachusetts, the primarily Democratic state where JFK was born, it's very different for me. We've lived a million places because my husband's a college basketball coach, so we've moved a ton. So I've lived in places uh, where we've had very high-class areas, very affluent areas. Um, One of the most shocking things to me when we lived out in uh, Oconee County, Georgia, was that we had PTA meetings during the daytimes. And at that point, it was interesting to see the vast change when we moved here, where there definitely are hungry children. Um, So I figured I needed to find a better way to understand the folks around me. How would you describe your own upbringing? Would you say that you are from a black middle class or a black affluent family? I definitely was affluent. It's funny, a lot of times I think in our society we try to say we are all the same. We all, we're all middle class, but the reality is we're not all middle class. I grew up in Brookline, Massachusetts, and my mother was a psychologist. She taught at Harvard. So I, I knew from an early age <laughs> I didn't want for much, as nor do my children. But it's been interesting to watch the differences from Massachusetts, Georgia. We lived in West Virginia. I lived in South Carolina. And really just giving me an idea of who the folks are in the United States And uh, I think I really went from affluent Georgia, I grew up in affluent Massachusetts at Brookline, and then I went to Howard University in D.C., which was predominantly black, um, which was definitely a different experience for me going from Jewish Catholic (laughs) neighborhood to all black college for four years, which was unbelievably great, but different. You have to get to know the people you live with. Peggy McIntosh has been writing about understanding privilege, white privilege for years, and right now it's become common language. It's funny, I read it Back in the 80s, it's become part of my work for the past 20 years that I've been in higher ed. But now it's becoming a common article that people are reading for the first time. What she's saying is you have to understand the privileges that we do have. And people get angry the minute you say the word privilege. But I have privilege of class. So I could walk around and say to the people who I interact with in these towns, pull yourselves up, get yourselves together. But that's not going to help us. There are hungry children around us. So what is your mission? You have been trying to read books that help you understand better white poverty, all poverty, but white poverty in particular. What books are you reading? I've been interested in this area because this is what I do for a living. I teach diversity. I teach cultural competence. So for me, um, there have been a few books that have been really exciting. There's been a whole uproar over the past couple years about the controversial book, A Hillbilly Elegy, and enough so that his comments about people just pulling themselves up was a little bit troubling for me um, because I don't think you just expect people can pull themselves up. Some people don't have boots to pull themselves up. Let's just stop. You don't need straps. You don't even have boots. Let's just start with there. But I wanted to know that perspective, even though I would not invest in his book. So I got some coffee, sat at Barnes & Noble. I'm a very quick reader, fast reader. (laughs) So I sat there and read it so at least I could be involved in the conversation (laughs) and then read some of the follow-up articles that people talked about because he limits in his book the understanding of women and what it means to be an impoverished white woman needing a hand up, or a person of color. So I understand it was his memoir, but I think one of the only times in the book he even talks about color and how that would impact his family was 
with regards to Tiger Woods. And I kind of giggled when I read that because I said, that's the reality of what I teach. I teach students who say, I have never had to interact with people of color until I had you, Dr. Jones. I am still so many students' first professor of color as a graduate student. So that was one of the books I started off reading. So at least I wanted to know the perspective. Another one is called The New Jim Crow by Michelle Alexander, basically trying to get a better understanding of generational poverty, what that looks like, understanding how early Jim Crow laws still have an impact today. Because a lot of times when I talk to even poor whites, what they say to me was, slavery was forever ago. It has no impact on today. And I don't think folks understand the lasting implications for generation that it has. And then, which uh, this spring that I was listening to uh, NPR, and they were recommending another book called White Working Class by Joan Williams. That one really caught my attention because I said, that's the folks who are around me. I'm doing this work in the city's schools here in terms of helping schools become more culturally competent. It's this three-year program that I do. And this group of folks really say they are being ignored. White working class. And I just said, I want to know more about this. These are the people I'm working with. These are people who I feel like are being lost or not being heard, so I want to know who they are. And again, one of the reasons they are not heard, I think, is because we all say we're middle class. We're not all middle class. Do you think they're right? People aren't seeing us? They don't understand what we're going through? In a sense, yes. I don't think folks understand poverty. Um, Michelle Alexander's book and some of the others led me to understand, want to know class better, basically, because we are having changes demographically because of race. But in addition, we're having really class is what's going on for us here. We're having a change. So I, I, I agree. Uh, we do have race and class in the intersect of both. But it led me to figure out how in the United States have we even talked about class, which led me to read a book by Michael Harrington that's been around since the 60s. It's a classic book. It's called The Other America. This is the book that in part inspired Lyndon Johnson to create the Great Society. Exactly. One of the lines that just jumped out at me is that society must help them, the poor, before they can help themselves. And I think that's a reality. First of all, we have to see that they're there. Another great thing from the book, it talks about as, as a country, the United States, it's harder for us to identify our poor because we have places like Dollar Tree or things of that nature where you can still buy things or clothing companies that charge a little less for things. So we, we blend in. But definitely when it comes to children, you know folks are hungry. School lunch numbers tell you a ton right there. One of the things he asked in the book is how long shall we look the other way while our fellow Americans, are, uh, our fellow human beings are suffering? And I feel that every day. How long are we going to look the other way? And I feel like we've done it with race. Right now we're doing it with a whole group of people. We can't look the other direction. And I feel like now because of social media, folks are showing us how their lives are, are playing out. And we can't. We can continue to do this and expect a change. We still had segregation and we still had Jim Crow laws, so we still didn't get all those benefits of the New Deal. So we still operated a step behind as people of color. So there's these books do a good job talking about class, but unlike uh, Jim Vance's book, he also talks about how the intersect of uh, race plays out, how the intersect of gender plays out. Because as women, as we all know, we make less on the dollar. That's just our reality. So put them all together, the intersects of race, class, and gender. We have a lot going on for some of us. Sharon Jones is a professor of counselor education at Radford University. This is With Good Reason. We'll be right back. Summer breeze makes me feel fine. 
Welcome back. We're continuing our roundup of the best summer reading recommendations from the With Good Reason universe. Up next, we turn to the poetry of the natural world. My name is Sheikh Umar Kamara. I am a professor and chair of the Department of Languages and Literature at Virginia State University. I recommend readings from two great poets, selected poems by William Wordsworth and A City Without People, the Katrina Poems from Niyi Osundare, a Nigerian poet. As we all know, this is summer. Um, this is the season of want, the peak of human activity, and people venture outdoors. They have come back with fond memories. This is a time of life. Well, William Wordsworth's poems, like Tintanabe, like uh, a Rainbow, are poems that transcend time because they talk about the beauty of nature and the need for man, the human being, to interact with nature in a very healthy way so that what we see in the rivers, in the waters, in the plants, in the meadows, and all the other components of nature are actually part of us and we're part of them. And so for him, nature is the, the medium through which he sees the essence of things in the world. For William Wordsworth, nature is life. Now, I wanted to read uh, some lines from the poem that is normally called or shortened to Tintan Abbey. This is the poem that's ushered in what is called the Romantic Era in poetry. It says, um, These beauteous forms through a long absence have not been to me as is a landscape to a blind man's eye. But oft in lonely rooms and amid the din of towns and cities, I have owed to them in hours of weariness, sensations sweet, felt in the blood and felt along the earth. And he's talking about the beauteous forms, the landscape around Tintanabe. And he's talking about looking at the landscape. He's been there five years before, he's coming back five years after. They are, they're still the same. They've always been there. So he's been passionate about these forms. That is the natural landscape. And that's a poem that is worth reading in the summer because it brings us back to nature. You should read selected poems by William Wordsworth if you are a lover of the beauty of nature. I also recommend City Without People, the Katrina poems by Nii Osundare. Osundare is a Nigerian poet, currently the most celebrated 
contemporary poets from Africa. In 2004 and 2005, those years brought to parts of Asia and the Americas a set of devastating tsunamis, hurricanes, and earthquakes that secured for themselves a permanent space in global memory. In The City Without People, the Katrina Poems, Nii Osundare makes an eloquent poetic testimony to the multiple human rights challenges disasters do create, such as unequal access to assistance, enforced relocation, loss of documentation, property, and so on. Let me read just one or two lines from some of the poems in this collection. It says, So many horses of pain have galloped through these shores, each with its own aftermath. None has left hoof prints as deep and wide as Katrina's scars. In another poem, The Lake Came to My House, he captures the gradual build-up of Katrina, which starts as a whisper among the leaves and end up sweeping the poet's house away. So we hear him say, then the pit-pat, pit-pat, bing-bang, bing-bang of the hooves of the trampling rain, my shuddering roof, my wounded house. In Katrina's diaspora, the reader or listener witnesses the displacement and dislocation of the people of New Orleans triggered by Katrina. Quote, Dad was bust off to Albuquerque, while Mom found herself in Utah. First daughter was black-hawked to Ashtabula, and the second son hitchhiked to Walla Walla. When members of a family are forced to live in different parts of the world, sometimes without knowing where each is, there's an urgent need to reintegrate. You should read The City Without People, the Katrina poems by Niyu Usunare, if you care about the implications of the destruction of the environment. Because these poems bring us close to the suffering that people go through when the environment is violated and when the levees can no longer hold the rage of nature. Sheikh Kamara is a professor of languages and literature at Virginia State University. Sometimes summer reading is about escaping the news. Other times it's about making sense of it. Brett Hireman is a professor of international studies at Virginia Military Institute. I spoke with him about taking a deep dive on one of the topics that hasn't left the headlines in years. Brent, you've got some book recommendations for us today, and they all have a certain theme. What is that? Yeah, so um, I'm very curious, and it's actually my area of study, uh, about U.S.-Soviet relations, U.S.-Russian relations. And so the books I'm recommending uh, all involve trying to understand this really complicated relationship that we've we've been dealing with for the past 20 years, and it's in the news every time you turn on the news. Now you, you see 
pictures of Vladimir Putin and you see, uh, you know, uh, images of Russia right now. And so uh, my recommendations are all involving that. So the books that relate to Russia that you brought with you and that you're recommending we read, what would you start with? So I'm going to start with the most recent book called From Cold War to Hot Peace, American Ambassador in Putin's Russia. It's by Michael McFaul. His selection as the ambassador by Obama was because he was someone who seemed like he could help negotiate that famous reset. Does he explain in this book why he thinks we got that wrong? He does. He's looking at how naive he was, how naive we often were in making these engagements. He criticizes himself, but ultimately he blames Putin and the people around Putin for for ending the reset. However, he does think that maybe we we uh, we made some rather naive choices along the way. Your own research focuses on countries that used to be part of the Soviet Union. Tell me a little bit more about what you look at that's not Russia. My specific focus is on the Central Asian states. Uh, these are the Stans, Uzbekistan, Turkmenistan, Tajikistan, Kyrgyzstan, and Kazakhstan. And I said that non-alphabetically. <laughs> um, these were all former uh, constituent parts of the Soviet Union. They, they had actually equivalent status uh, as Russia did within the Soviet Union. But upon the breakup of the Soviet Union, they all became independent states, despite the fact that none of them really wanted to be independent states. They all would, uh, would have preferred to be part of the Soviet Union. Um, it involved uh, all sorts of complications as you try to go from being a constituent part of, for instance, a larger national economy to having your own economy where you have to manage everything internally. And th- their role within the Soviet Union was to generally produce raw materials that would be sent to other parts of the Soviet Union for processing. What happened to those collective farms of the communist era in those countries? So the way agriculture worked in the Soviet Union was such that you, you couldn't have private property, you couldn't have private land, and they were, they were all collectivized. Well, at independence, and suddenly you have pressures from uh, international community as well as the desire for economic efficiencies, these collective farms were no longer the way to go. And so uh, there was pressure, encouragement, legal changes to break them up. Um, However, lots of people were reliant on these farms, lots of elites, and a lot of efforts were taken to try to preserve uh, these collective farms at the local level. What about the system of support for people who worked on collective farms? People who weren't the elites, what was the bargain for them. So yeah, there, there was direct social contract or, or a social bargain that you had where you wouldn't have private property, but uh, you'd be working in a village. And in that village, uh, you'd have access to health care. You'd have education for your children. You'd have obviously a job and you'd have food on the table. Uh, and so uh, you couldn't become wealthy. You couldn't become rich, but you would survive. And uh, you would be part of a system, um, and you'd be part of a of a larger global superpower. You'd be a citizen of a global superpower. And so that was the deal. If you worked on a collective farm, your life was hard. However, uh, you had this welfare system that took care of you. So how was that now for them? Well, so uh, in some locations, collective farms have broken up. In some other locations, they have not. Uh, where they have not broken up, you no longer have that same contract. You no longer have that same bargain. You have people who are working and living on the collective farms. 
there's still often a school in in the village, but the, it's often underfunded. Uh, you don't have the same health care um, assurances. And unfortunately now, you're not getting paid. Most of uh, the farm workers I've been in contact with on the collective farms have indicated that they're not paid money or currency for their work. At most, they're going to get cottonseed oil or cotton stalks, uh, which they can use to burn in the winters. But they're, they're working for work uh, for the most part. They're not, they're not working for uh, actual profit. You also brought a book that you've been reading you think might help us understand it a little better. This one's a novel. Yeah, so I have this great book, and, and I really mean it's a wonderful book. It's called Red Plenty by Francis Bufford. It, when, when I describe it to you, you might think, there's no way this could be a, a fun book to read. Uh, it's a book about Soviet central planning. It's a fictional history, I would say. And I, I've been trying to think about the best way to describe it. If, if you know movies by Robert Altman, it, it's sort of like that, in that it has a variety of different characters. And it follows these characters over a multi-year period, mainly in a 10-year period. It's trying to tell the story, or it does tell the story, actually really brilliantly, about uh, how the Soviet central planning system went from a period of tremendous promise, positive utopian vision of the future, and then traces these individuals as they start to become more disillusioned by the system. And it's told in a series of vignettes. I would describe it almost as a science fiction story. And, and I say this because it opens up in the mid-50s, and that was a time in which uh, a lot of the actors, the, the elites in the Soviet system, had this belief that they could solve all of the issues of economic planning. They could solve poverty. They could make it so everyone could live well and happy. And this was an honest belief for many of them. And, it, and so it starts with that opening promise, right? And, and so in that way, it's very similar to like, you know, a science fiction story like Star Trek, right? This utopian vision where, you know, you could have this plethora of goods for everybody and everyone can enjoy. And it traces some of the, the justification for that belief. But then all of the issues that come about and the difficulty of trying to plan this massive economy, and, and it shows you not just elites like Khrushchev is a key player in this book, but also some of the, the, the lesser um, individuals. Like you, you get to know some people on the black market who have to make the deals to make sure all the goods get where they're supposed to get and try to ensure that the different areas that are supposed to get, for instance, let's say cotton, the, the factories that need the cotton that are, that are supposed to be delivered, well, the problem is the system wouldn't give them enough cotton. And so you have to go through the black market to get all the cotton you need. Uh, and it, it traces those individuals as well. And it's really, uh, it's just a wonderful, I would say a fun book, um, even though it's about Soviet central planning. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder. Um, so sum it all up for us. If people want to dive into these two books about Russia, one a novel, one mm -hmm. nonfiction, right. who would be most interested, do you think? Sure. So so the Red Plenty book by Francis Bufford, that is a book that I think provides a tremendous insight for anyone who's, who's curious about well, how, how did anyone actually believe in communism, right? This is a system that, of course, failed. And so why did anyone believe it? This provides insight into you know, people's real beliefs into it, as well as the problems uh, that, that that system produced. Uh, 
it's a beautifully written book. It is he's just a wonderful writer, but it it helps explain in a way that a nonfiction book can't. The promises of the communist system, the communist state, and the problems of the communist state, but it also because you're following these individuals, it helps gain insight into how people who uh, I guess for people who who only know our system, how how others could just believe so deeply in a in a very different economic rationale. And it's not because they were foolish or because they were somehow tricked or duped, but they truly believed they had mathematically figured out these magic formulas. And it helps to provide insight into uh, both the problems of those magic formulas, but but as well as how and why people believed it and the, the realness of that belief, I would say. In terms of the Michael McFall book, uh, this is the From Cold War to Hot Peace, uh, the memoir by the ambassador. Uh, this is a book, I think, of interest to anyone who's curious about contemporary dynamics uh, between the U.S. and Russia and wants to dive a little deeper and try to figure out how did we get where we are now uh, and why we have so much problems and, and are these new problems uh, or are they these long-lasting dynamics? Brett Hireman is a professor of international studies at Virginia Military Institute. Next, we move to women making their mark on Mormonism in the United States, plus a little sci-fi to round out our list. My name is Stephanie Richmond, and I'm a historian of abolition and women's rights in the United States and Great Britain at Norfolk State University. I've been reading Laurel Thatcher Ulrich's Houseful of Females, um, which is about plural marriage and women's rights in the early Mormon church. So it looks at Mormon women who were active in the Mormon community between 1835 and 1870, right during the time period where the Mormons began to embrace plural marriage, so multiple wives. There are some diaries and some letters and some other documentation that illuminate what these women thought about their husbands taking on multiple wives and what their lives were like through this time period. Mormons were very severely persecuted, and some Mormons were actually killed by mobs that attacked them in Illinois and elsewhere on the East Coast. Ulrich documents a really interesting women's organization in the very early Mormon church that was originally sanctioned by Joseph Smith and then Brigham Young, after Joseph Smith died, Brigham Young, the second leader of the church, disbanded it and said that Smith never authorized this women's group because the group had come out against plural marriage. That was the group that raised a lot of the money to build the first temple in the community of Nauvoo. And they did a lot of work in the community to also help women whose husbands were out on mission and they were left behind in the community without a provider. So it was a really important group for kind of women's survival in Illinois, which was still kind of the frontier um, in the 1830s and 40s. But it also challenged the leaders of the Mormon church on the question of plural marriage. The word feminist is ahistorical for that time period. Feminism really doesn't, people don't start to call themselves feminists till the second half of the 19th century, not really in the United States until the early 20th century. But I certainly would say they were advocating for women's rights. 
those rights might not be the kind of rights we think about today with, you know, the right to vote or the right to have equal pay with men, but they certainly were advocating women's rights to speak out on issues that matter to them in the community and women's rights to be secure um, in their marriages and secure in their church um, in the role that the community decided women should have. Um, There's a lot of primary source material included in the book, but Laurel Thatcher Ulrich, who is a you know, Pulitzer Prize winning historian, writes for multiple audiences and it is published by Knopf, which is not an academic publisher. It's a long book, but the personal stories of these individual Mormon women are really compelling. It's in many points a really sad book. Women's life expectancy and the life expectancy of children is very, very low. So there are a lot of women mourning the loss of infants and toddlers who didn't make it, um, which is you know, at times hard to read, but also helps to understand why these Mormon women were so focused on the afterlife because they had lost so many people they cared about from their families and in their communities. But, you know, I'll, I'll usually have multiple books going at once, usually one or two nonfiction uh, works that are related somehow to my um, own scholarship or teaching, and then a, a fun read. Um, I read a lot of mysteries and a lot of science fiction. So uh, uh, science fiction sometimes crosses over in between. Um, sometimes those tend to be a little more serious. Um, so I did read one other book actually last week that was really interesting, which is that Afrofuturistic. It was really good. My husband recommended it to me, and I think he just found it at the library. We're both big science fiction fans. And um, you know, set in this world where there's this planet that is um, has a lot of African elements the series is called Binti, and I think there are three of them out now, but they're really short and these just amazingly intricate uh, world and storyline in this, like, you know, 75, 80-page novel. Um, my husband recommended it to me, and I think he just found it at the library. Um, we're both big science fiction fans, and so there's a, a young woman from a community that paints their skin with soil um, and paints their hair with soil, and she is some sort of kind of genius at um, creating some technology like that requires kind of manipulating energy Uh, and she gets accepted to the universe's university there and so she goes and in the process the spaceship she takes is hijacked by aliens and she winds up in order to save her own life they kill everybody else in the ship Um, to save her own life she ends up helping them Um, and it's really interesting the kind of African elements the traditional tribal African elements with this very futuristic and also very um, socially relevant storyline that looks at um, ethnocentrism and racism and um, genocide it's really interesting Stephanie Richmond is a professor of history and the program coordinator for history at Norfolk State University. Major support for With Good Reason is provided by the law firm of McGuire Woods. Support also comes from the University of Virginia Health System, connecting doctors and patients through telemedicine to deliver high-quality care throughout Virginia, the U.S., and the world. UVAHealth.com. With Good Reason is produced in Charlottesville, by Virginia Humanities. Our production team is Allison Quantz, Elliot Majerzik, and Cass Adair. Jeannie Palin handles listener services. Special thanks this week to Jonathan Benfield, 
of WVRU in Radford. For the podcast, go to withgoodreasonradio.org. I'm Sarah McConnell. Thanks for listening. Thank you.